0: Moving is an incredibly stressful time, and being sick is an incredibly stressful time as well. So, moving and being sick, by doing the math, is an incredibly ridiculously stressful time. Now, on top of all of that, what if you were actually just a fox, and you were trying to move from one area to another? At that point, you might say, gosh, I wish someone was here to figure this out for me. My name is Luis Colerotolo, and I am not a fox looking for a new habitat. But I am a graduate student at the University of Guelph doing my absolute best over here to get a PhD in food science. And when I should be doing work, but I'm certainly not, I like to talk to other graduate students or recently graduated students who have a lot to say about what they study or what they're doing in life. Now, I move from apartment to apartment almost every year, but I'm not a fox. Now, however, if I was a fox moving apartments, someone like Sam Allen might be super interested in how I move and if I'm bringing any diseases with me. Sam plays a critical role in managing disease transfer when transferring animals to new habitats. She works down in Wyoming and has a lot to say about transferring animals. But beyond having a lot to say, she likes to plan even more. In fact, listen to her say it herself.
1: I will tell you for a recent translocation that I was part of, it took me about a year to plan for it. Um, And I would say that I would have preferred another year, right time to plan, because I am a planner and I like to do that. I've used that word far too much in this whole kind of talk. So sorry about that. But
0: So if you want to follow in Sam's footsteps and learn a lot about disease management when transferring animals, you can plan to listen to this episode. But while you're listening, make sure to plan to think that we're early professionals in our fields and we don't know everything. But that's why you're listening to an episode of We Know Some Stuff. Hey, Sam, how are you doing today?
1: I am great. How are you doing?
0: Hi, I'm doing all right over here. Could you do us a quick favor and tell us your educational history?
1: Sure. Um, I can start back with my undergrad, um, and it's pretty simple. I did uh, marine and freshwater biology at the University of Guelph. Um, I had transferred into that after starting in HAFA at the University of Guelph. I just decided business wasn't for me. I then kind of wandered across, as we call the dark side, across the road to the OVC. And I did a master's in antimicrobial resistance. I was looking at small, tiny little critters, what they carry and wear. And then I decided to work for a bit. So I worked as an RA, um, a research assistant, and then I went to vet school, um, which was a really interesting time of my life. Um, and after all of that, you know, between working and trying different things, um, I went back and did my PhD at the University of Guelph, still, you know, on that dark side because animals had to be involved. And that's kind of where I am now.
0: Yeah, so you're you are on the other side of the road for life over here.
1: Yes, 100%.
0: God, you you have given University of Guelph a lot of your money, haven't you?
1: 100%, all of my money for a very long time. Um, The only thing I can say is I'm a little older than most uh, PhD grads, so I still remember, you know, not paying so much for an undergrad tuition, unfortunately for people now, but... Yeah, they do have a substantial amount of my money. So yeah, yay, way to go, Golf. Yeah, yay. way to go,
0: <laughs> All right, enough of those advertisements. Um, yeah, <laughs> let's jump into it. Let's jump into it. What what in the world are you doing?
1: doing now as my job
0: yeah what are you doing now
1: so right now i am wyoming's state wildlife veterinarian Um, i'm also adjunct faculty out here at the university of wyoming and really what that means is that i oversee all of our you know wild free-ranging species populations here in the state of wyoming based on health um, disease handling and care so it's a very interesting job. There's a lot of stuff that happens quite a bit and it really ranges. So one day I could be working on moose and then the next day I'll be out working on fish and the next day I'll be working on sage grouse. So a lot of different species, it changes all the time. All right.
0: Wyoming. Okay. What what kind of environment is Wyoming? I know the state capital of Wyoming is Cheyenne. That That's oh, one fact I do know.
1: That's pretty good. And that's more <laughs> than I knew when I took this job here. So congratulations to you. <laughs> All right.
0: Not bad.
1: Uh, Wyoming, as far as environment, I would say is very different from the East um, on top of the fact that it's in the USA. So it has been a bit of a culture shock, not only from the perspective that I'm a Canadian, in in, uh, land of Americans. It's a red state, so there's a lot of that to keep in mind. And it's also very West, right? And not a lot of people think about, you know, the East versus the West. There's a lot of different thoughts on how stuff should happen. Land use is used differently. You know, the outdoors is used differently. So there's just a lot of that cultural stuff that was a bit of an interesting, you know, awakening when I came down here.
0: Yeah, that's got to be such an interesting intersection of like science And how science is conducted. Right. Because, you know, we're, we're talking about yeah, Guelph, which is in, you know, southern Ontario. Uh, we have a somewhat different agenda, I would say, as far as like uh, land usage and policy and what people care about and intrinsic beliefs. than what's going on over in Wyoming, which am I wrong? Is Wyoming like Rocky Mountain kind of feel or?
1: Yes. Yeah. yeah. OK. Yeah. And I would say 100 percent. The only thing I'll kind of throw in there is at the end of the day, I think when it comes to wildlife disease and wildlife populations, which is really what I do, everyone kind of wants the same thing, which is like a healthy and active population of animals. And so the difference is where people want to kind of get there, right? So I have disagreeing thoughts with how some people want to get there. And I'm sure, you know, it's probably not an East versus West thing, but maybe there's other stuff in there too. But I think, you know, there are differences just based on where you're from and You know, I I do like a complete ecosystem, so I think there's a way of everything to kind of interact and work together. Some people would disagree with that. However, we're still trying to attain the same thing. So you're trying to work with people and not change minds, but maybe, you know, provide that education and a different view. And then at the same time, you're trying to let them educate you because you're new to this environment too, right? So it's one of those things where you don't want to come down and say, well, I know how to fix your problem. I haven't lived here for 50 years. I don't know everything that's happening. So it's been a lot of give and take. And so far, people have been pretty patient. There's been unpatient people. um, But I think you get that everywhere. Uh,
0: You know, it's kind of beautiful the way that you put it there. Um, And I imagine we could draw some sort of parallels between the fact that you're kind of this outside species that's coming into this place uh trying to say hey well here's scientific facts here's things that we need to achieve um, but at the same time you have to respect the environment that you are in which is substantially different than southern Ontario
1: yes a 100 percent and um Yeah, I would just say that it's just been a lot of learning and trying to learn and using, you know, all the skills that I got through my many fun degrees, you know, to try and kind of put all of that together. I've also been very lucky that, you know, I've kind of worked as I've gone to school, too, so I've been able to kind of do some of that policy work prior to coming down here. and But yes, I would say every day is a new fun challenge um, and every day requires some kind of like pivoting a little bit to try and get people to understand, so.
0: Yes, and with all of your degrees and all of your experience, I'm assuming you wear multiple hats at work. You don't just do one job.
1: No, um, I <laughs> will say I do a lot of different jobs, um, even you know not simple but you know budgeting right like just some basic like let's learn how to run a budget and that was always something i was incredibly fearful to have to do um you know i wasn't sure where i would totally end up but i knew i'd probably want to be in a supervisory kind of role um so you know budget's gonna come along with that so yeah i mean i do stuff from like financing to you know supervising staff to hiring um sometimes firing unfortunately Um, I'll be in the field. We have a very strong research component in our group right now. um, So there's a lot of work there. Um, And my position alone called vet services, so I supervise it. I oversee a captive research facility and I oversee a lab, like a diagnostic lab. So I would say even just from that, I mean, you're pivoting from diagnostics, right? In a lab and developing molecular tests to pivoting to like large animal research, right? Working with elk and bighorn sheep in a captive. Setting So there's a lot of hopping back and forth and really trying to educate yourself because when you do your PhD, as you know, it's very specific and it's in a small area and then you get out into the big scary world and you really have to take that and expand on it and try and learn how to do things differently.
0: Yeah, it seems that even though you have your degrees and you got plenty of them, you still are going to be learning throughout the rest of your career.
1: Yes. Yeah. And yeah, I just think it's a—it's one of those jobs that if you didn't want to learn forever, it, you're probably not in the right area.
0: So, <laughs> Well, then it, it, it's good that you're here.
1: Oh, well, I don't know. I know Guelph mm. is happy that I kept getting degrees, so.
0: <laughs> yeah, repeat customers, I think they call you. Yes, 100%. Yeah. All right, so you manage wildlife. Uh, th- this is kind of a big term. This is this is a big category, isn't it? Uh, could you could you give us an example of what a role of a wildlife manager does?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I wouldn't technically consider myself as a wildlife manager. I see myself more as a helper of wildlife managers. We have um, in the department wildlife biologists, you know, we have habitat specialists, we have conservation officers that they call wardens down here, um, and I really put all of the kudos and props on them because they're actively, you know, collecting that information, working with the public constantly and doing a lot of that work. I would say that while well, I like the stuff that I do and I think it's important in my own way, we're kind of one of those tools, you know, on the toolbox of trying to understand Maybe why populations aren't thriving the way they are, you know, maybe why they're not doing well anymore, Um, or maybe why, you know, they're rebounding in certain ways. And so, yeah, that's how I kind of see myself fitting in to kind of the wildlife management realm. And the big things here right now Um, are stuff like chronic wasting disease. Um, So Wyoming has an incredibly high prevalence of chronic wasting disease in their cervid populations and stuff like brucellosis, which is a disease I was told I'd never see, but I came here and here it is. So that was a fun surprise for me. But again, there's a lot of these like big, you know, ticket diseases that are running through. So that's kind of how we assist managers in managing their populations.
0: So we have in the past two years gotten incredibly familiar with the concept of getting sick. Uh, And uh, that has definitely been something on all of our minds for a very long time now. But animals get sick too, don't they?
1: Yes, yes. Or I wouldn't have a job.
0: (laughs) Well, hey, so you know what? I'm not going to say that we want animals to be sick, but at least it keeps you employed.
1: Yes,
0: 100%. So, So we have the concept of us getting sick. Uh, and, and we know that we, we go to doctors if we're sick or we take care of ourselves. Sometimes we try to find our own diagnosis so we know what we're dealing with. But your patients, if you will, are animals. And they get different kinds of diseases from humans. Um, and some, sometimes they share diseases with humans as well. But nonetheless, they're getting sick. And that changes sometimes the population of uh, animals that are in a specific area. And that's a problem, right?
1: Yes. So zoonotic disease, which is probably a big term that everyone knows now. I know back when I kind of started this fun path, that wasn't a word that was commonly used. So basically that just means... You're getting disease transfer right from animals to humans and they have this fun reverse zoonoses now which i think is sacrilegious because i think zoonoses is what it means but um where you're kind of going like you know humans animals animals humans kind of thing that can really impact you know how animals are living and then also how we're living with animals and so one of the big thoughts there is just how land is being used Um, and how we're coming in closer contact with these species. You know, we're sharing wastewater with them and landfills and all that good stuff. You know, we're in their backyard pretty much on a regular basis. So a lot of that is kind of inevitable as far as people are concerned. The other fun kind of addition into this cycle is our domestic animal population. They're pretty much directly in contact with a lot of our wildlife populations. So as far as stuff like spread and development of new viruses and pathogens, and like that's just all very easy now to kind of do based on how we've kind of set up our land use and how animals interact with each other and how we interact with animals. So if you think about an example, and I won't use coronavirus because I know people are sick of that right now, sick, um, (laughs) but avian influenza is another big one that's kind of, you know, going around the world right now. And that's definitely a virus that's easily spread between wildlife, domestic animals and then in some cases to people and that has a lot to do with like usage and how we're farming and just how stuff is kind of in constant contact with each other so it is really important to you know track this kind of stuff and study it and keep an eye on it to potentially try and at least you know slow stuff down if we possibly can I know it's impossible sometimes to you know completely eradicate diseases from occurring but I think like climate change now's the time right to really evaluate how we're doing things because it's only going to get more and more kind of as time goes on for some of these things unfortunately
0: from what you just said it sounds like what you deal with is immensely complicated there seems to be so many different components that affects uh, diseases i guess in general and how they spread and how they come about how in the world do you manage something like that?
1: Um. Okay, well, I'm trying to think, how do we manage that? I think a lot of it is just really trying to understand systems. And and that's tricky, right? Because what you want to do is you see a problem and you want to get in there and you want to solve it as best as you can. But as we've kind of seen with coronavirus, sometimes taking that step back, analyzing kind of where we're at and coming up with a plan um, is the most effective way to do that so when it comes to understanding the complexities of like wildlife disease one of those things where you really need to step back and try to understand it a lot of people i like to bring up the kind of epidemiological triad it's like this little triangle Um, so you have disease in a corner you have a host in another and then you have environment in the other corner and through using that you can kind of map out right the different complexities that you would be dealing with Um, so from a host perspective right what kind of host are we dealing with what's their behavior you know where are they at what do they require food wise you know all of that stuff that will impact the host and then you look at the pathogen and you're like cool okay what kind of pathogen are you what, what impacts you and then you look at the environment and you try and put those all in there come up with kind of that plan and again after you've come up with all of that the other important thing is to have an objective of what you want to do so for some of these wildlife populations anyways are you trying to maintain a population in the face of disease so for example cwd are you just trying to keep stuff at a certain objective right are you trying to keep the same number of animals there are you trying to increase that herd somehow right keeping in mind that you have these pressures Coming in from disease and health status, or are you trying to reduce a population, which happens too sometimes? You know, maybe they're a little bigger then like a carrying capacity, then something can carry on. So again, you need to kind of understand everything in my nice little triangle and there's other stuff. Um, and then have like really clear objectives on what you'd like to do, because that really helps you going forward. I don't know if that helped at all. But
0: yeah, you know, it's nice to be able to kind of narrow it down, or at least kind of bring it down in a more broad sense to the, the host, the pathogen, and then the environment. Uh, and when I think of these sort of the population dynamics, the amount of species that are around in this area, it, it brings to mind, you know, the circle of life from, you know, the Lion King, right? You know, they, there's the whole thing. I, the lions, I think the lions, they turn into grass and the antelope beat the grass. Is that what I... Not, not not, important. From a scientific standpoint, we can't prove that one. However, uh, we you get to a point in which maybe there are too many lions and there's not enough antelope. And that can be an issue because then some of the lions will starve. And then what if there's no lions and then there's too many antelope because all the lions starve? This is tricky, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. And I would say that I don't know. There's just a lot of, you know, thoughts into how to manage. There's a big fancy North American, you know, management model that people tend to follow, right, to try and keep populations at a certain level. I think sometimes when you're a little heavy handed, sometimes it's hard to swing back if you want to. So that's why I'm a really big proponent for really thinking through some of the bigger Management decisions prior to going forward with it, Um, especially stuff like translocations. I've been a part of a number of translocations down here. So, basically, like moving animals from one area to another. And you just really have to think those through because you could be, you know, moving disease not even knowing about it to a new area that causes not only problems for that population that, you know, didn't have problems before, but, you know, to that group that you moved over to. Maybe they're going to get a new disease you didn't think about either. So, it's just I'm a big fan of really planning prior to you know pulling the trigger on some of these big management plans. So
0: the the planning step I'm I'm super interested in because I imagine you and, and no shot against you but you don't know everything.
1: Obviously not. I don't. Well, I went to school for like 16 years. I don't know. What I'm doing.
0: <laughs> yeah. Don't worry about it. That that's life. You don't know everything. Yeah. However, you have a lot of the tools to figure things out. Yeah. So, what what goes through the process? Let's say you're you're considering one of these translocations. You're going to move a population or, or an amount of animals from one area to another area. Uh, what wh- where do you start? How do, do you do? You just read it in a book and it says yes. If you move sixteen wolves to over here, everything will be great. That that's not written down in a book. Where do you start?
1: Well, I mean. The one thing I'll say again is, you know, we have exceptional, like, partners in a lot of these translocations, so I'm not a biologist, right? So my PhD taught me to be a disease ecologist, and so I'm not even a real ecologist, right? Like, ecologists are mad at me, so I try not to put that word when I talk to them. So you're really relying on the people that have that training in biology and ecology to come up with an appropriate... Number of animals, you know, from a population to a population, like what can you take and what can you give, and what's going to work out. And then you need all those fun habitat people, right, that have training in habitat biology and ecology, because they're going to figure out is this okay? Like, can we put something here? Is it going to live as long as it can? Um, so really, that front end part of all of the translocation work. That can take five to ten years and i'm not really even involved at that point because the part that i get involved in is when they go okay now we're ready for what diseases are we moving how are these animals going to survive during translocation can you give them a health assessment when they're here to make sure they're healthy enough to move um, so that's a lot of the work that i would do when it comes to that and as far as that planning goes You're totally correct. I mean, there's not one textbook that's like, hey, Sam, this is how you translocate Swift Foxes. You know what I mean? Like, this is exactly the steps that you need. I will tell you for a recent translocation that I was part of, it took me about a year to plan for it. Um, And I would say that I would have preferred another year, right? Time to plan because I am a planner and I like to do that. I've used that word far too much in this whole kind of talk so sorry about that but yeah i just think there's a lot of papers that you can kind of try and filter through i'm gonna say quickly here for people as an aside when you write your methods (laughs) please write them like a recipe like when you write methods and i go back and i read stuff and i don't know what you did like please if you do anything when you're doing your undergrad at 12 please write your methods like a recipe, so I can use them later. But there's a lot of lit reviewing. Um, I think I called every vet I've ever known that's worked with swift foxes, and just having to trust the you know education and work that you've done on previous stuff. Right? I've worked with red foxes before, so I had to trust that. while they're not the same species at all. That maybe they're somewhat comparable because that's what I got. So um, there's a lot of that kind of comparative species work.
0: That sounds difficult, to say the least.
1: Yes, it's very fun. You, you phrase
0: it multiple times, and, and now we'll address it. It's a multidisciplinary effort. You are not, you know, a yes. big animal mover in charge person. That's not you. It's not you and your job only. No,
1: and I mean... I mean i talk about the biologists and ecologists and the habitat specialists but i also like leave out the politicians and i should not do that all the time because they need a part of this too like a lot of times they're the ones either saying yay or nay especially down here for translocation work and then there's a lot of other collaborators in there there's graduate students and like there's a ton of effort so i mean the one again i keep bringing up the swift fox one because it's the most recent one but there is like 55 collaborators at this point just to move 50 animals across a state line like that's that's a lot of people a lot of time you know a lot of work so
0: i i can only imagine when you're having conversations about what you do with other people even when you're having this conversation with me that people don't understand the brevity you know of what you're doing it it, it seems that there, there's so much work that goes into moving as you said 50 fox. Foxes? Foxy? Foxes. Foxes. You got it. Yeah. Honestly, you said 50, and my brain was thinking, like, oh, she's obviously moving, like, 500. But you're just moving 50. And uh, a year of planning, and you wanted another year of planning for 50 foxes. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> this kind of blows my mind, not going to lie.
1: It's a lot, right? So when you're thinking of moving stuff, you really got to be sure that this is the right reason, like that we're doing this for the right reason. So anyone that wants to translocate animals and not give it appropriate amount of time and I, you know, I am a super planner. So maybe other vets, you know, they've been doing this for 50 years. They say, no, I need two weeks, no problem. But I'd always be really hesitant if someone said, oh, I could get this done in two weeks and I'll move animals there because you're forgetting something. And we probably forgot something even with all this planning that occurred, right? So I don't know. I just, yeah, I'm more on the side of let's not move disease around if we can avoid it. So.
0: All right. So you're a big planner. Planning is your thing. uh, But at some point you do that action. You move the animals. The swift foxes have been moved. Do you assess how well they do afterwards? Is that part of something you do? Or do you just move on to another project?
1: So for me, um, I was really lucky because the collaborators that we're working with kind of included me from the get go. So typically, you know, you would be done and that's it. And you'd kind of send an email occasionally because I'm also a worrier. So planning and worrying is an excellent combination just to kind of see how they did. I've been really lucky because they've included me on their email update, you know, they're always sending me maps and videos showing me how they're doing. So yes, they do kind of let us know, again, because there's so many collaborators and people have different hats and different roles, and mine is more of the disease, keep them alive until they get there kind of group. That's kind of where other people step in. And they have excellent grad students right now who are tracking them because they all got fitted with very tiny, cute little collars, um, because they're very tiny, cute little creatures. And that's kind of what they do to let me know that either, you know, someone is alive, someone had a baby, you know, someone unfortunately got hit by a car. So there's all that stuff that I get to hear about.
0: It's uh, kind of like receiving Christmas cards year after year from people. You, you really don't talk to them anymore, but you still get the Christmas card.
1: No, 100%. I get a monthly update and it's excellent. And they've been very good to work with. So it's nice to see that stuff.
0: You're, you're also probably learning a lot from these updates, though, because, you know, you, you can plan a lot, but If what you planned, you planned it thoroughly and it didn't work out, you would want to know what happened, wouldn't
1: you? Oh, so much. Yeah, I I mean, and I'm going to jump to another example. I mean, we were out working with moose recently and, you know, I've worked with moose before, but we had a situation where, you know, I couldn't plan for. I just had to have the stuff that I had and, you know, a calf fell into a frozen pond and, you know, it's not something that I typically was going to plan for. I was really grateful that landowners were there and we could borrow towels and warming blankets and hot water bottles and all that stuff. But I don't normally carry that in my pack, right? Because that's not something you think would happen. So I think every time you're out there, you definitely learn something and i definitely have emergency warming blankets in my truck now and i'll probably never need them ever again but they are there so
0: yeah well there's there's the curse of planning is that you're just so prepared yeah too much (laughs) all right so if we were to sum all of this up if we were to just tie a nice bow on it is there anything that you would want people to know about what it means to consider diseases when transferring animals?
1: Yeah, I think I just want people to know that every action has some kind of reaction to it. So if you're gonna move something, either positive or negative or even neutral, cause that can be considered an action too, something you know might potentially occur. So please plan, 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 plan and realize that, you know, we might not have all the tools right now to identify certain diseases. So we could potentially be moving stuff around and not really know either. You know, we pick the diseases we look for and we pick the tests. And if we don't have the proper tests for certain species or we don't know what we're looking for, um, that makes it really tricky. So it just really has to be an excellent reason to be moving stuff around. I will say back home, I don't know as much translocations that occur as they do down in the USA. But I think COVID also put a stop to a lot of stuff in Canada for the last few years. So that could also be the case.
0: All right. Well, I'm not planning on translocating any animals anytime soon. I, I imagine I'll move eventually, which is a translocation of me and I'm an animal, but I don't think... I'll let you know, but I, I don't think that you need a year to figure out how to plan for me to move. So so we'll leave that out of it. I hope not. That's a long time. That would be a long time. I usually just like sign an apartment after I search for like three days because I'm sick of like looking for apartments and I end up somewhere I really yeah, don't poor
1: like. Poor planning. I know. Poor planner. I, I'm just going to say that. I don't
0: have the patience for it. So I, th- you know what? We'll just say that you, your job is not the job that I could do.
1: No, fair. That's okay. Right. I couldn't do many jobs, so yeah. Fair
0: enough. All right. Do you have any uh, final words? Anything you want to get off your chest other than telling people to like make sure that they write out their methodologies properly?
1: I would say that I had an exceptional time at the University of Guelph. Obviously, by the number of degrees <laughs> that I got, but um, I also enjoyed a lot of my non-grad time at Guelph. So I really just would encourage people to take that time to try a new hobby. And I know it's hard with COVID, but there's a lot of stuff online now that you can do um, even just walking around and appreciating what Guelph has to offer. Um, It's a beautiful campus and there are really excellent people there. And I had a really strong, you know, footing when I left the university to jump into a role, which is sometimes a little all over the place, but that's because of a really strong background that I got there. So just take advantage of what's coming up. That's all I'm going to say. All right.
0: Good advice to hear. Well, thanks so much uh, for talking with us today. It was a real pleasure.
1: Oh, thanks for having me here. It's been a lot of fun. I like talking about wildlife disease, obviously. So it's been good for me.
0: Coincidentally, since the recording of this podcast and the publication of this episode, I have already moved apartments, and I didn't email Sam. You know what, I'm going to do that right after this. But she probably doesn't care too, too much if I have a disease when I move. However, she does sure care a lot about animals and their diseases when they move. At the end of every episode of We Know Some Stuff, we have to admit that we don't know all the stuff, which is why we close out every episode with a fact check. So, Sam and I listened to this episode a few times, and we didn't find anything that needed direct correction. However, it should be noted that if new evidence comes out in the future that proves us wrong in what we said, we will be the first ones to correct it. But until that time comes... Thank you for listening to another episode of We Know Some Stuff.